we come to you and we thank you so much that you've given us your Holy Spirit that Lord we can look at this word and we can see the truths that are given here especially as we come to this great story Lord this wondrous story about how you came to this earth as a babe in Bethlehem it's just beyond our finite capacity to understand that God Almighty would would enter the womb of a woman and and come out as a little child and Lord, uh, the creator of the universe as, as a small child was just, again, we were just so amazed at that, Lord. And you have given us your spirit, so we do believe that is truth, and we know that's truth, Lord. And with that truth comes great responsibility, Lord. You came to save us, and you came to save us not just so we could go on with our business as usual, Lord, but so that we could uh, live the kind of lives that you've called us to live, righteous lives, Lord, holy lives. So we ask today, Lord, that, that we uh, look at this text and we look at our own lives and see exactly where we are with you. And Lord, if we've allowed so many things of this world to crowd you out of our lives, help us to, to make an adjustment and, and open our hearts to more of your presence, Lord, so that we can have the kind of peace that uh, you want to give us all, that peace that passes understanding. Lord, I just ask you that you teach us these truths, Lord, and that as we worship you today, as we look at this great text about your birth, Lord, we're so excited about Christmas, Lord, and we're so excited about what it means. We're so excited about Jesus Christ and, and what he's done for us. Thank you, Lord. We thank you in your precious name, I pray. Amen. Twenty-seven years ago, we were heading off to seminary, and we made a trip from Las Vegas down to New Orleans in a couple of days with two toddlers in the car. And when we left that first morning, we wanted to go as far as we could. You know, we, with two toddlers, you don't know how far you're going to get. So we didn't make any hotel reservations. And so we got to about El Paso about 8 o'clock that first night. And we pulled off the highway, and there was a string of hotels along the way. And and uh, we started stopping at hotels, and every hotel we stopped at had a no vacancy sign in the window or on their marquee. So we went down to the next exit, and sure enough, uh, uh, we got off, and uh, we went to the mo string of motels that were there, and all of those had no vacancy signs. So I went into one of the hotels there, and I asked them, I mean, can you tell us where we could get a room? And they said, hey, there's not a room to be had right now. This is the week the last week uh, before school starts and everybody's traveling and, 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 you know, good luck finding a room. So what we decided to do was get back on the road with two toddlers, get back on the road and keep traveling and every hundred miles or so stop and see if we could find a room. Well, we did that all night till five o'clock in the morning until we finally found a room at the Best Western. And then the kids were getting up from the nap, and we were having a hard time getting any sleep, but, but it was a pretty, uh, a pretty strange journey, and so I can relate a little bit to what happened to Mary and Joseph. I mean, they left out, they set out from Nazareth to make an 80-mile journey, which was about a three-day journey, all the way down to the little town of Bethlehem, and when they got there, there was no room in the inn. The vacancy, the no vacancy sign was was up and, and they couldn't find a room. And not only were they weary from their travels, she was about to have a baby. And so we're going to be looking at that story today and, and maybe looking at 
some deeper meaning to that phrase, there was no room in the inn, uh, as we look at the Christmas story. But first, let's go back to where the story began, because really, the first two chapters of Luke are the Christmas story. Uh, this Christmas story didn't begin on Christmas night. It actually began in the temple when Gabriel came to Zacharias and he announced the fact that uh, Zacharias in his old age was going to bear a son and that son was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so he, he announced, Gabriel came to him and announced that and then Gabriel went to Mary and he announced to Mary that she was going to bear a child and that child himself was going to be the Messiah. So Mary goes and she visits with Elizabeth and she's there until the day that John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus Christ, is born. And that's where we're going to begin today at the end of, of chapter 1. But I don't want you to think that as one section and then we go to chapter 2 and that's a totally different event. All of these things are working together uh, for our good. The birth of John the Baptist, uh, what Zacharias has to say about the incarnation of the Lord and and his son, John the Baptist, and then the Christmas story, they all go together. Really, I don't even think there should be a chapter break there. Uh, that's how well connected they are. So go with me to chapter number one of uh, the book of uh, Luke, and let's pick up in verse number 57. And, and uh, Elizabeth is about to have her baby. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, for, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard now how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Now, in that setting, when they had a child, and especially their firstborn child, they threw a big party. All the neighbors and their relatives would bring meat and they would bring wine uh, and they would celebrate. They would celebrate if the child was born and it was a son, the party would go on all night. If the child was a daughter, they would get their wine and their meat and they would go home and the party was over because they wanted a son. Especially that firstborn child, they wanted it to be a son. So they throw, they, this story is different because they knew that uh, John the Baptist was going to be a son. They knew that Zacharias and Elizabeth were going to have a son because the angel Gabriel had told them that they were going to have a son, and so they knew. So this party was well planned, and they had a good time. And then there's another party that took place eight days later when they circumcised that firstborn son. And so that's where we want to pick up in the next verse. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're about to circumcise the son, and, and when they circumcised the son, that's when they gave the son his name. So looking now at verse number 58, it says, so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, the same group of people, uh, uh, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth and all their relatives and all their friends, and, they, and their friends and their relatives would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias, because they said to themselves, look, hey, there's probably not, there's not going to be another son born to Zacharias and and Elizabeth. This is probably it. And so this is their one chance to name uh, their son after Zacharias. And so all the relatives and friends said, hey, why don't you name him Zacharias? But his mother answered and said, in verse number six, uh, 60, his mother answered and said, no, he shall be, he, he, no, he shall be called John, Johan, or 
uh, Jonathan, which means Jehovah, the gift from Jehovah, and we talked about that last week. But they, but they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Why in the world would you name him Jonathan? So they turned to Zacharias and they, they, they plead with him, hey, you don't want to name your kid John. So, so verse number uh, 62, so they made signs to his father what he would have him call. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, uh, saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Now, he, in Zacharias' mind, the matter was settled. God had given him this child, and God had given him the name for the child, and that's the name that he was going to have, and that name was John. And so no sooner did he write those words down, then immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. Now think about that for a minute. For nine months, he hasn't been able to speak a word. Then all of a sudden he writes down the name John and his tongue is loosed and he begins speaking again. Now I wonder what you would have said after nine months of not being able to speak. Lord, what did you do that to me for? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, you, I don't know what would have come out of our mouth. You can think about it yourself and maybe figure out what would have come out of your mouth. But let me tell you what came out of John's mouth. Praise. He praised God. He immediately began praising God. And, and, uh, and everybody marveled. And because of all of this, fear came upon in verse number 65. Fear came on all those who dwelt around them. And all these things were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And, and the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, that birth of John the Baptist was marked by three miracles. Three miracles. One, Gabriel came to announce his birth. One, when Gabriel announced his birth, uh, Zacharias' tongue was... Uh, not, was tightened so that he couldn't speak. He was made a mute. And then the third miracle was when John, he wrote down, when John was born and he wrote down the name John, his tongue was loose. So they saw three miracles there, and everybody knew about all three of those miracles. And so they said, hey, what's going on here? God must be up to something really big that these miraculous things are happening. We hadn't seen miracles in Israel for hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden we have all of these miracles, and and something really big is about to happen, and they were exactly right. Something big was about to happen. Uh, the Savior was about to be born into the world. Now, let's pick up in verse number 67. Now, the father of Zach Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, and in the next several verses we get this prophecy. Uh, some people call this, this the Benedictus of Zacharias. Benedictus is the Latin word which means blessed be, and that comes from the, the, that name comes from the first couple of words there in verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Uh, some call this the prophecy of Zacharias. I would call this the song of incarnation because this song is much more about the incarnation of God than it is about John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias. And so there is a prophecy element here, but but uh, it's about the incarnation. Now, now let's look at this uh, 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 great 
song that Zacharias sings, and it actually sets up the Christmas story. It's critical to the Christmas story. It tells us what the Christmas story is all about. We're going to actually see the narrative of the Christmas story, but this is what the Christmas story is all about, and that's why it's so important, and that's why it's tied to chapter number two. All right, now, listen to what he says in, in this song. He says, Blessed be the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim. Blessed be Jehovah Elohim of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, that word visited, uh, when we think of a visit, that means, hey, you know, if you've got relatives that visit you for Christmas, they're going to come, they're going to ask you how you're doing, they're going to stay there a little while, and then they're going to leave. That's not what the word visit means right here. It's the word episcopus, from which we get our word episcopalian. It means to oversee. To get a good picture of what this word means, go back to what we were looking at in the book of Exodus when God visited the people in Israel when they were in bondage to Egypt. God didn't just come and visit the people and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Hey, you're not doing so well here. And then go, he went back up to heaven. No, he came down, he visited them in order to oversee their affairs, in order to change what was happening in their life. And that's exactly what this means right here. Uh, John is prophesying here about, about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, or the incarnation of God as Jesus Christ, and, and the way he describes this is that God has visited his people. He's come to oversee his people, those people of faith, those people of God. And how has he come to oversee them? Because he's come to redeem his people, uh, he, he, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, then look at verse number 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of, of his servant David. Now, who is the horn of salvation? Who can answer that question? Who's the horn of salvation? The horn of salvation is Jesus Christ. It's none other than Jesus Christ. Now, why is he called the horn of salvation? Well, that word horn is used in a couple of ways in the Old Testament. You remember when we were in the book of Exodus, when you went into the tabernacle and we looked at the brazen altar. What was on that brazen altar? There were horns. And what did those horns represent? They represented the, the pain of the sacrifice. And so that's what, he's the horn of salvation who suffered for us so that we could have salvation. But those horns also in the Old Testament, when you go to Daniel and you see those horns, what do they represent? They represent power. And so that sacrifice, what, what that metaphor that John is using here in this, in this Benedictus, he is, he is using the metaphor that refers to the power of salvation, to the power of the painful sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's exactly what Paul says over in Romans chapter 1 about the gospel. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe both Jew and Gentile. And so, so that's what he means by the horn of salvation. It's the, it, God is, 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 is not coming just to, to, to make life a little bit better. He's coming to save the souls of men so that they can live forever in peace with God, having the peace of God. And we'll see that peace here in just a minute. All right, now, so he goes on and he says, Let's see, where did I leave off? Verse number 70, he said, as he spoke, as he spoke, now who's the he? 
the horn of the south, the horn of salvation. Who's the horn of salvation? Jesus Christ. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Now that's a very profound statement that John makes by the power of the Holy Spirit right there, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says about Jesus. Jesus spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. This horn of salvation is the one who spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. You, you understand what he's saying right there. He's saying that every prophet who spoke in the Old Testament, and all the Old Testament is written by the prophets. Moses was a prophet. Everybody that spoke uh, in the Old Testament, Christ spoke through them. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, there was an Old Testament professor who warned us one day. He said, don't look for Jesus behind every rock in the Old Testament. He said a lot of people are guilty of doing that. Well, Zacharias would have failed that class because in Zacharias' mind, Jesus is the rock, and Zacharias is exactly right. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the one who spoke the Old Testament. He's the one who inspired the Old Testament. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. He said, is, is the Spirit of Christ who was in the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That, the, the entire Old Testament, and that's why when I hear people say you don't need the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. There's as much New Testament in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. The New Testament is all over the Old Testament. And it was Christ who was speaking through these prophets. Not only did he speak through these prophets, he spoke to these prophets. He spoke to them face to face. You know, I heard somebody say the other day, God loves us so much. He loves the human race so much that he couldn't wait for Bethlehem to get involved in the human race. I mean, he, he couldn't wait to meet his prophets till they came to heaven after they died. He came to earth while they were still here. He came in the form of the angel of the Lord, what we call a theophany. You, the, the theophanies you see over and over again in the Old Testament where, where, the, where the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ appears to an Old Testament prophet. He came and he spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Isaac, and he spoke to Jacob. Uh, he, he spoke to David, he spoke to Joshua, he spoke to Gideon, he spoke to Samson. I mean, he, he spoke to just about everybody in the Old Testament and, and probably some that we don't even have in the Old Testament. And, and so that's the way Zacharias saw Jesus. He saw this horn of salvation as the one who inspired the entire Old Testament, which is written about these events that we're looking at right here and about the cross that's going to come in the future. All right. Then he says in verse number 71, what, what did he speak? What is the Old Testament about? And, 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 and what was Jesus speaking through these Old Testament prophets? And here's what he spoke, beginning in verse number 71 that we should be saved from our enemies. The Old Testament prophets spoke about a day when not only Israel, but the entire world would be saved from their enemies. Now, here they were living in the time where Rome had bludgeoned them into submission. 
Uh, there was peace on earth, but it was a terrible kind of peace. They had lost all their dignity, all their rights, much of their property. And, and here comes Zacharias in this song, and he says that, hey, the prophets who Jesus spoke through, this horn of salvation spoke through, promised us that we should be saved from our enemies. And that's leading us up to the incarnation, because how are they going to be saved? Through this incarnation of Jesus Christ. And from the hand of all who hate us. Now, there aren't many people in the world who hate Israel, are there? How about every nation except maybe the United States, a piece of the United States? And that's, uh, if this administration takes over in January, that's probably going to change. They don't have many friends. Right now, they're signing some peace agreements over there. And the reason those people are signing peace agreements with them is because they're afraid of what's going to happen uh, with Iran and some of these other, Russia and some of these other countries and Turkey that are against this certain branch of the uh, Islam religion. And so, so they're signing really a military protection agreement more than anything else. And so, so uh, but for the most part, uh, most of the nations of this earth hate Israel. And, and, but, but God's going to save them from that. And, and, and then he says in verse number 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. What's the oath? The oath that there was going to be mercy, the mercy. What's the mercy? You could put, that's another name for Jesus Christ. He's the mercy. Uh, uh, remember what, what was the oath that God made to Abraham? This was the oath that through your seed all the nations including Israel will be blessed. The Messiah would come through your seed. The mercy would come through your seed. And, and not only would he save Israel but he would save all the nations of the world who have faith. All the peoples of the world who have faith. Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And because Abraham believed in God, God swore to him that he was going to, through his seed, he was going to bring a Messiah that would save the world from its sin from, uh, and from its enemies. Those enemies without and those enemies within. And those enemies within are our own sinful nature. Now, how was God going to do that? He promised Abraham how he was going to do it. Remember when Abraham went up on Mount Moriah to make that sacrifice of Isaac and God stopped him and he said, uh, Abraham, Abraham, don't kill your son. On this mount, I will provide a sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh, I will provide a sacrifice that will save you from your sins. And that sacrifice is a sacrifice that, that uh, Jesus Christ made on the cross. And that's why this incarnation is so important. All right, then he says in verse number 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. You know, here's where a lot of people miss out. I mean, we get this idea, hey, it's great that we have a Savior. It's great that we have a Savior who died on a cross for us. But he doesn't die on a cross for us so we can just go on living like we lived before. He died on a cross for us so that we can serve him, look at this, without fear, in holiness and righteousness 
all the days of our lives, not just in the days that we're going to live in heaven, but the days that we live now. God came in, as a child in Bethlehem in order to grow up and die on a cross so that you and I could live the kind of life that he, he has chosen for us to live. And, and uh, uh, that's a life of holiness, and that's a life of godliness. And that can't happen unless you've been born Again, there's no way you can live the kind of godly life, a holy life, unless you've been born again. Jesus, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And he goes on in verse number 76, and he says, and you, child, now he speaks about John the Baptist and his role in all of this. And you, child, you're going to be important too. You will be called the prophet of the highest. Who's the highest? Jesus Christ. For you will go before the face of the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus Christ. To prepare his ways. Don't tell me Jesus is not God. The highest is highest. You can't get any higher than highest. And Jesus is the highest. And he is the Lord. And he's the one who John the Baptist came to prepare the way for. To give understanding of salvation to his people. Verse number 77. By the remission of their sins, something has to be done about our sins. For us to live in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, something has to be done about our sins. And that was the message of John the Baptist. He came and said, repent and be baptized. And, and he wasn't just talking about water baptism. He was talking about being baptized in the Spirit. John couldn't give that baptism of the Spirit. He said, one's coming after me who can give you not only this baptism, but the baptism by fire, the baptism of the Spirit. You have to be born again. And, and, and so uh, uh, to give you the knowledge of salvation to his people, that's what John the Baptist did when he said, repent, uh, prepare the way for the Lord. But... That repentance comes by the remission of sins. And we can't do anything about our sin. We need the Lord to take care of our sins. We can't take care of it ourselves. How does he take care of it? I love this passage, this next verse right here. Verse number 78. Through the tender mercy of our God. That's how our sin is taken care of. With which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the way of peace? The way of peace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is peace? There's peace with God, where God's, you're no longer an, an enemy of God, you're no longer at enmity with God, and there's the peace of God that passes understanding. And who came to give us that? The day spring. The day spring the highest has visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death through the tender mercy of God. That phrase, tender mercy of God, is very important right there. Because literally what it means, it means from the gut of God. Mercy that comes from the very gut of God. Deep down in the bowels of God. He looks down on this earth and he pities us poor sinners. He pities us. He knows that we're nothing more than dust. And he loves us so much that he sends us 
the day spring. Now, what's a day spring? What's a water spring? A water spring is a spring of water, right? So what's a day spring? It's a spring of day. It's a spring of light. He brings us light. He's visited us with this spring of light to give light to those who have set in darkness in the shadow of death, to bring us out of darkness and into the light and out of death and into light. Into light. Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 9, verse uh, number 2. Those who have dwelt in darkness, in the shadow of death, on them a great light has shone. And that's exactly the role of Jesus Christ uh, in his incarnation, is to bring us light. He is the Logos, the Word. His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Uh, he... he uh, loves to shed light in our souls, to show us truth by the power of his Holy Spirit. Our problem is, what does Jesus say about the state of mankind? We love darkness more than we love light. So something's got to be changed in us. Again, we have to be born again. We have to make a choice, but we have to be born again so that we can, he can guide us, our feet, in the way of peace, so we can have peace with God and we can have the peace of God. Then in verse number 80, so Luke goes forward a little bit here. He's going to come back, but he goes forward a little bit here to tell us about what happens next with John the Baptist. It says, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, Zacharias was a Levite, and so he raised uh, John the Baptist to be a Levite, and it was uh, it was twenty years of preparing a child to be a Levite. If you if you had Levite children, and then they went to do their ministry in the synagogue or the temple. John the Baptist didn't go to the synagogue or the temple. He went out into the wilderness, and that's where he stayed until he got his marching orders from the Lord. And we'll see that later on. And in future studies in Luke. But, but now we come to the Christmas story. And as again, as I said earlier, they're, they're tied together. John has set this up with this Benedictus. Uh, of, I mean, Zacharias has set this up with this Benedictus of, of Zacharias, with this blessing to God for all that God has done for us and all that he's going to do for us. And then now we come to this great Christmas story. So here we go, picking up in chapter number two. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This, this, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, Luke does something for us here that's very important, and he does it in several places throughout his gospel. He does it uh, in the book of Acts. He gives us historical facts, historical detail that allow us to date the events that are taking place here. Two things he gives us right here. He gives us this name, Quirinius, and he also gives us this name, Caesar Augustus. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, the governor of Syria really had nothing to do with the events that are taking place, so, so we know that that's the reason that Luke's given us this name so that we can date this, this event, the birth of Christ. And it's really interesting that they found archaeological evidence of this man named Quirinius 
And they found it back in the 18th century, and it was dated like 7 to 10 A.D. was his reign. Now, that presents a real problem. That almost makes it look like Luke was wrong about his characters or wrong about his date. Well, in the 20th century, they found another document with Quirinius's name on it, and come to find out, Quirinius had been governor of Syria twice. He had been governor of Syria, just as Luke said, when Jesus was born, and he would took on a second term later on. Uh, so that was proven correct. Well, there's no lack of evidence for Caesar Augustus. Everybody knows who Caesar Augustus is. His actual name is Caius uh, Octavius, and he was the first imperator of Rome, the first, the first uh, one-world leader of the Roman Empire. Uh, he, he, his name was Caius Octavius, but when he had defeated Rome's last enemies, the Senate honored him uh, with the name Caesar Augustus, uh, augur means God, uh, to uh, uh, announce to everybody that he was divine and worthy of worship, that he was such a great leader that, that we are going to, the Senate uh, voted uh, to deify him and, and uh, demanded worship from all of his constituents. Now, the first major decree that Caesar Augustus made was to require everybody in his empire. Now, at this point, Rome is a one-world empire. They bludgeoned all of their enemies into submission. And uh, his first decree was to require that every male go to the city of his birth, where the birth certificates were, and to register in that city. Kind of kind of like some of the things that are going on right now, this one world order where you know where every citizen is born and where every citizen uh, is at any particular time, and so you can keep up with them, mainly at this time for taxation purposes, but in order to, to know exactly uh, where to find anybody in your empire at any time. And so, so he conducts this census, uh, and uh, everybody had been uh, put in such a, a submissive position that everybody did exactly as he said. Now, was Caesar God? No, Caesar wasn't God. We know that Caesar wasn't God. We know that there's only one God, and that God is Jehovah God, who is God and always will be God. And so this man who considered himself an augur was nothing more than a puppet in God's hand. He was doing the bidding of God. And here's what God was having him do by God put it on it. Here he is. He's thinking, you know, I'm, I'm the leader of the world, and I'm going to make everybody go and register in their hometown, and I'm going to be able to tax them and find them whenever I need to find them, and uh, everybody's going to submit to me uh, because I'm God. God's on his throne, and he laughs. So he puts it on, he puts it on Caesar's heart to uh, call for this census and to make everybody uh, go to their hometown because he's got something in mind. He wants Joseph to leave Nazareth and to head to Bethlehem so that Jesus the Messiah would be born exactly where the prophets predicted he would be born. Uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrah, though you are little among thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth the one who, to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting. In other words, God is going to be born in Bethlehem because God chose to be born in Bethlehem 
and Caesar was just a puppet in his hand, moving people around to where God wanted them to be, and he wanted uh, Joseph and Mary, and, uh, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem, and that's exactly where they end up. All right, then look now at verse number four. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to comply to this order, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, who was betrothed with wife, who was his betrothed wife, who was with child. All right, now, how was she betrothed? Go back to chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit came upon her, and the power of the high overshadowed her, and she became pregnant uh, with the Christ child. All right, then, then uh, in verse number 6, so it was that while they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Now Mary had more than one son. This is her firstborn son. But this title given right here is not so much about the chronology of the event. I mean, yes, he was her firstborn son, but firstborn in that context means her most important son. Obviously, he was her most important son. He was none other than God Almighty in the flesh. But, but that name is given to Jesus in several places in Scripture. Uh, he's the firstborn over creation. He's the firstborn over death. Uh, he's the firstborn over many brethren. And so he is the firstborn. So, he's, so she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, swaddling clothes is really maybe a poor translation there. Really, it simply means strips of cloth, what we would call rags. She wrapped him in rags and laid him in a manger, which is a feeding trough, maybe a better translation for that, because there was no room for him in the end. So she brings forth her firstborn son, and there's, here he is, the king of kings and lord of lords, and there's no room for him in the end. We'll look at that a little bit later on, too. Then verse number 8. Now, there, we're in the same country, shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord. Now, I wonder who that angel of the Lord is. He stood before them, uh, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. He's going to announce the coming of the Christ, the incarnation. wonder who that is. It's got to be Gabriel. I mean, that was Gabriel's job. Gabriel was the guy with a, with a really good job. I mean, all he did was share the gospel. He shared the gospel to Daniel. Uh, he shared the gospel to Zacharias. He shared the gospel to Mary. Uh, he, he, uh, he shared the Christmas story with to Mary and Zacharias and then Joseph. Uh, more than likely, he's the one who's going to share the gospel in the, in the book of Revelation when the gospel is written across the sky. And so, so he's got a really good job. And and now he's sharing the gospel with these shepherds. You know, God loves shepherds. He, he, he loves shepherds. And so the first people he's going to, hey, it's, it's, it's a boy. Who's, he, who's the first people God's going to tell, tell uh, the good news to? He's going to tell it to shepherds. I think there's some other reasons there, but, but uh, he loves shepherds. Uh, and so the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. This, this, this is absolutely amazing to me. The heavens open up, and the glory, Shekinah glory of the Lord comes down from heaven. Now, where is the Lord at this time? The Lord's in a manger. 
uh, in, a, in a feeding trough somewhere. And yet the Father in heaven and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. Uh, and, and obviously uh, these shepherds were greatly afraid. Why were they afraid? If you ever stand in the presence of the glory of the Lord, you're going to be afraid. Now you remember when Isaiah uh, saw the heavens open up and the glory of the Lord showed all, came trailing down all through the earth and Isaiah could see this. And I, What did Isaiah say? Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips living amongst a people of unclean lips. And uh, I have seen the face of the king. I've seen the face of the king of kings. He saw none other than Jesus Christ on his throne. And he was afraid because he recognized the fact that he was a sinner. And when these shepherds see the glory of the Lord, they recognize the same thing. They recognize, hey, he is holy and I'm not. And so they're greatly afraid. And, and, and listen to what the angel says to them. The angel says, uh, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. And now, here's why I don't want you to be afraid, because I've got some good news for you. There's going to be something, yes, you're sinners, and yes, you're standing in the presence of a holy God, but, but your, your sin is going to be taken care of. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, not just you. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, Yeshua, none other than Yeshua, Jehovah is salvation, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, Jehovah, He's born to you, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, that's an interesting sign. This will be your sign. You're going to find an infant baby, and he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he'll be lying in a manger. All right, then the next verse. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I'm sure if you've looked at this text before, or done any study on this text, you know that that last part is probably not the right translation. Actually, the way this should read is glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace towards men of good will. A better, much better translation. There's not, God wasn't promising peace to all men or goodwill to all men. Jesus said himself, he said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What God is promising here, uh, what these angels are singing about here, is that uh, there will be peace uh, to those people of goodwill. And, and uh how do people have goodwill? Uh, they have goodwill uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so you get this amazing picture right here. You've got God on high, uh, the Father in glory. You've got uh, God on the earth, this babe in a manger. And, and what, what do these angels sing? Peace on earth, goodwill towards man. Peace on earth, uh, towards men of good will. And uh, men, what does he mean by men of good will? Who are men and women of good will? 
Men and women who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're a person of goodwill. You've been totally changed. Uh, your will's been totally changed. Before you were born again, before I was born again, my will was bad will. When I got born again, my will became good will. And how are we changed? We're changed by that babe in Bethlehem uh, who was born to make us people of goodwill and to give us what? Peace. Peace. What's, what's the main theme right here? It's peace. Peace with God and the peace of God. That's what God wants to give us all. And, and, he, wants to, and he does that by uh, changing us. He changes us from men and women of bad will to men and women of good will. Jesus said this over in John chapter 14. He says, I leave you my peace, not as the world gives you peace. I give you a different kind of peace. There was peace on earth uh, when the angels sang these words right here. That wasn't the kind of peace they were talking about. That, the peace that was on earth in those days was the peace that was, that was made through military might. There weren't any wars on earth during that time because Rome had bludgeoned all their enemies into submission. But in the process, all the people on earth, most of the people on the earth had lost almost everything. That's not the kind of peace that God wants to give us. He wants to give us that peace that give us that peace that passes understanding. That peace that comes through the Spirit of God where we're at peace with God and we're at peace with one another. That can only be done supernaturally. And it took that little babe in Bethlehem coming here to grow up and die on a cross for us in order for us to have that peace. Now then, we go on and we finish up. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, that's interesting there. The shepherds leave this scene. They, they hear these angels singing in heaven, uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards man. They're, they hear these angels singing and uh, they leave and they're gonna, they want to go see the child. And they make haste and they immediately find the child. Now, how were they able to so quickly find Jesus? Uh, there's, there's a few theories about that. Some say, well, they saw the star. Well, I don't think the star came uh, until the wise man came. It, the star was given as a sign to the wise man. And they probably did come for at least a year later. I know that messes up a lot of people's manger scenes, but, but uh, they, they probably weren't there for at least another year. So how did they know where to find that baby? How could they make haste and right away go find the baby Jesus? Well, they were given a sign. Remember back in chapter number 12. They were given a sign, and they, they said, this will be a sign to you. You're going to find the babe, and here's how you're going to find him. It's, a, it's an infant, and so you might hear him crying. Uh, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's wrapped in rags, and he's lying in a manger, a feeding trough. So that's how you're going to find him. 
Now, I imagine every little home in Bethlehem had a feeding trough. Uh, every mom in Bethlehem had rags that she used in, in uh, the things that she did uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So how did they know where to go to find this baby? Well, there's, again, there's a couple of theories on it. Uh, one, the star, I think you can kind of throw that theory out. There's one that kind of uh, sparks my interest, and I'll share that one with you. Uh, and that's this. Uh, Bethlehem sits just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. In fact, if you are standing up uh, on the Mount of Olives, you can look down over the little valley where Bethlehem sits. And it's full of pasture land, at least it was in that day, for people to herd their sheep. And so more than likely, from Jerusalem, where the temple was, the the temple uh, stables would be more than likely not located in Jerusalem, but somewhere down there in Bethlehem. And one of the things that they did when they would bring the sheep into those stables, they would check those sheep to make sure they did not have blemish. And so they would use rags, lots of rags, to rub over the sheep to make sure somebody had put chalk on the sheep or painted the sheep. Uh, in order to make them, sell them to them as if they didn't have blemish. And these shepherds, no doubt, had dealings with this temple stable. And so they knew about these rags. They knew about all of these feeding troughs. Uh, they more than likely uh, were employed by the temple stable, or they sold sheep to the temple stable. So they knew exactly where to go, and that was to the temple stable where the sheep were kept for the sacrifices. Now wouldn't that make sense that God would choose that as the birthplace for his son because uh, he is the lamb of God, the lamb who was slaughtered on Passover for our sins. And, and so it would make real, uh, I think a, a good probability that that's exactly where he was born uh, there at those temple stables because he was the ultimate sacrificial Lamb. Now, you know, I'm not going to argue that with you, so don't come up with me after and say, I don't think that's it, because uh, I can't prove that it is. I, I'm just, I, it just sounds like a really good theory to me. sounds like a plausible theory to me, but again, uh, I can't be sure, so, so I'm not up to arguing about it. All right, verse number 17. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. I, I, you know, that's, we kind of just run through that verse. I got to tell you, these guys were excited. You remember in the movie Wonderful Life when George Bailey's life is restored to him? Remember what he, he does? He runs out. He says, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. And I got to believe these shepherds did the same thing. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, the, a child's been born and, and who is the savior of the world. And, and uh, they went out announcing that with all sorts of joy. But look at Mary. But Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. I mean, here's Mary, and she's seen and heard some amazing things in the last few months of her life. I mean, the angel Gabriel came to her and told her that God was going to overshadow her and the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her and she was going to have a child, and sure enough, she got pregnant. And sure enough, they went down to Bethlehem and, and things looked kind of bad. I mean, was God really in all of this? And I mean, she had you know, seen the, uh, John the Baptist jump in the womb of Elizabeth. 
uh, she had heard Elizabeth give her all of that praise and, and tell her, blessed is your womb and, and blessed is he who's in your womb and all of these things. And, and she had heard all of these things and then these shepherds come to worship her child. And, and her head had to be spinning with all sorts of thoughts. What's going on here? I mean, what is God doing here? She had an idea, but nobody knew exactly for sure, and I'm sure she pondered those things and held those things in her heart all the way to the time when she saw Jesus Christ hanging on that cross. And she knew that he was none other than God Almighty. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And We'll finish there. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? All of us who've read the rest of Luke and we've read Matthew and we've read Mark, we've read John, we, we know the rest of the story. Isaiah sort of sums that story up in one verse over in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The child that's born is that baby in that feeding trough that baby in that manger, that baby who made that arduous journey through life for us, that arduous journey that culminated on a cross where he died for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he made that arduous journey and suffered that terrible death and then he comes to all of us, all the people in the world, and he knocks on our door, and he, he comes to give us peace, to give us peace with God, and to give us the peace of God. Now, if I were to ask everybody in this room, do you have peace with God right now? I think every hand would go up. At least every hand of every person who's born again, I think you'd raise your hand. But if I were to ask you today, do you have, are you really experiencing the peace of God? I don't think as many hands would go up. Because we all know about the peace with God, because that's what the gospel is all about. But do we truly experience the peace of God in our hearts? If we're not truly experiencing the peace of God in our heart, I can tell you why. Because Jesus has knocked on our door, but there's no room in the inn. No, no vacancy sign sits on the door, or hangs on the door of our heart. Most of us have filled our lives with so much of the things of this world that we have pushed him out of our hearts. And yes, we have peace with God. We know we're born again. But we don't truly experience the peace of God. That peace 
that passes all understanding. I got to tell you, we're living in times where I don't think 2021 is going to get much better than 2020. And we need to find out just how we can have that experience of the peace of God. And I'll tell you, it's real simple. We've got to make room for the Lord in our hearts. We've got to get rid of some of those things in our life that are causing us to keep him on the outside instead of experience his fullness on the inside. You know, we only hurt ourselves when we allow all these things to push him out. So you want a New Year's resolution? You want to have a best Christmas you've ever had in your life? Take inventory of your heart and get rid of some of those things, all of those things that are keeping him from living there with you in the way he wants to live with you so that you can truly experience that peace. And with that peace comes joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The question is, are we giving him room in the end? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the peace that you offer us. Lord, we've all come to Jesus Christ through the cross and Lord, we know what it means to have peace with you. But Lord, most of us in this room have allowed so many things to crowd our heart. The things of this world, Lord, things that, that, that don't fulfill our souls. Cisterns that are broken, that, that we drink from, Lord, that, that don't satisfy our thirst. Lord, we're missing out on that peace and joy that you promised us, Lord. So, Lord, I ask today that we all, by your spirit, can see just where we stand with you and why we're struggling so much in this Christian walk. And, Lord, help us to make adjustments, adjustments to make you truly king of kings and lord of lords. Lord, you came to this earth as a child, as a babe, to become the son who died for our sins. Lord, what? should our response be to be to be make room for you in our end help us to do that lord i ask that in the name of jesus christ it's his precious name that i pray amen